right, good evening, Grace Church of Mentor. Uh, I want to thank you so very much for joining us uh, this evening on a Sunday night. Um, I know that it can be a bit of a challenge to gather yourself up uh, and uh, get in front of your, your device, either your TV or your pad, or iPad, or, or whatever it may be, and perhaps some of you try to gather your family around, and I just want you to know we really appreciate uh, the extra effort uh, that it takes. I know that sometimes we think having a Sunday evening service as it normally would have been in the past, that certainly took some effort to get to as you gathered your family, got them in the car, and brought them here. But I know, um, uh, at least in my life, as I've uh, been at home, and uh, there have been equally some challenges. So it seems like... Um, Ease of access doesn't eviscerate all obstacles in getting the Word of God. I completely understand that. And, and in fact, when you're sort of in the comfort of your own home, it can be a little bit even, a little more challenging, in fact. And uh, so I thank you for setting aside all the possible reasons uh, not to tune in. And I just thank you so very much for prioritizing God's Word and wanting to continue in the understanding of the Gospel of Luke. Pastor Mike and Pastor Steve, Pastor Havis and myself, uh, we're, we're excited to bring you the truth that God has worked over our hearts, and I'm so thankful that you're, you've uh, chosen to uh, meet with us. And, and uh, hopefully, uh, some of the information you hear, if it piques your heart, your interest as a discipler, uh, these things I know are being recorded. And uh, you can always mark it down and go back and refer to it and use the information as you seek to help your disciple, perhaps through some challenging things. So another resource, another opportunity to be confronted really with the most precious treasure that we have on earth. You know, as some people would say, well, the most precious thing that I possess is Jesus Christ. Well, I think that's true insofar as it goes, but the reality is, is it doesn't go very far if we don't have the infallible and errant Word of God telling us about the person of Jesus Christ. So I think there may even be a, 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 a priori or a prior, a prior um, uh, most valuable thing that we possess, and that's God's Word. So with that in mind, we're going to look tonight at Luke chapter 10. Uh, we're disciplining our hearts and minds to verses 25 to 37. Uh, it has a familiar portion, the Good Samaritan, included there. And we're going to really mine out really the, the setting, the context of, of this very familiar um, parable that Jesus speaks. But before that, we want to go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Uh, we're remembering this evening the Zerm family and comfort for the loss of... Uh, 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 Pat's husband there unexpectedly uh, during this time, and uh, it's been a challenge that our church family hasn't been able to gather around and encourage them. Pat, if you're listening, know we love you, and our hearts go out to you, and, and uh, we wish we could be there with you, um, but I hope that uh, you know the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the truth that your husband's in heaven with the Lord. What a delight that is. What a comfort that is. Um, we're praying for uh, Marion Wallace as well and others who are battling and with uh, different sicknesses and challenges. Uh, we want to remember those folks as this is, we've already mentioned several times, a very particularly difficult time to uh, be walking through health challenges with uh, the inability to get to hospitals, with family members who can stay and whatnot. Uh, so let's just pray for these dear folks, for comfort for them. And we've all seen paraded across our televisions and devices uh, uh, some more uh, politically charged events, uh, the, uh, the work with the appointment of the justice. Uh, we want to remember her and our country in relationship to her appointment. Uh, we also want to think about the election that's coming up. We're so thankful that uh, God puts up rulers and takes them down, uh, that uh, we have the joy and the confidence uh, of really submitting ourselves to our governing authorities, uh, remembering that we're submitting ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ in doing that. And we want to continue to 
uh, pray for them as they work through the, this time of pandemic and the challenges that they face. And we also want to remember our elders as we work through what our responses ought to be. I know that's a week-to-week -week reality. We're certainly uh, praying for our pastor and really the corporate wisdom of our elders, along with Deb and Eric, as pastor has mentioned, has been a, just a tremendous uh, uh, counsel uh, for him and for us. So all these things we want to gather up in prayer, as well as our time here together tonight. So let's pray, and then we'll look at the Word of God together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the glory and joy of holding the infallible, inerrant word that you have for us today. Your, uh, these 66 books of the, the Protestant canon that uh, simply clearly reflect uh, the earmarks of inspiration. And we thank you that it is upon the truths that are objectively articulated there that we can build our lives fully confident that we're building them on a firm, objective base. And uh, we delight and rejoice in the truths of your word. And we look forward to looking at Luke chapter 10 and understanding uh, specifically uh, Jesus's word tonight to us uh, in this gospel. And we pray that you would help us to uh, come with learner's hearts. Lord, we confess we desperately need that. We are not... Um, wired to be learners. We need a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our life to humble us, uh, to make us intellectually humble, to make us willfully humble, to make us emotionally humble, and to realize that we need help. And so I pray that we would seek that tonight, that we would come to your word with that disposition. We pray for our church family, Lord. We thank you for them. We pray as they are discipling each other and being discipled that you'd continue to grow us up in grace and in the knowledge of our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would be filled up, too, with the knowledge of the will of God and that we would abound in love still more and more in all knowledge and discernment so that we can approve excellent things and we would challenge and encourage each other to these ends uh, with an open Bible between us. And Lord, we pray for uh, as well for those who are hurting, those who are going through health challenges, and uh, we pray for the Zerm family. We pray, Lord, for uh, comfort and encouragement for those dear folks, and, and Lord, we do pray as well for um, uh, uh, Marion Wallace and Daryl and, and uh, Marie and the kids there as they uh, seek to encourage her. We think of Glenn, too, as he walks by the side of his dear wife. She endures these challenging, uh, this challenging battle with uh, cancer. And we just commend her to you and would pray for grace for this dear family. And so, Lord, we gather all these things up. We pray for our president. We thank you for answered prayer as you have healed his body. And we pray for his son and his wife that they would uh, continue to, uh, I believe, uh, there's some good report on them, if not healing, but uh, are close to it. We thank you for them, for answered prayer. And we pray, Lord, for all who are suffering under the, the, the burden of COVID-19. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, give doctors continued wisdom and scientists understanding. Uh, we do ask that you would um, mitigate the fear, Lord, that this pandemic has caused and is creating uh, within the church and without the church. Lord, we know that your perfect love has cast out fear. And I pray that we would live in light of that perfect love and entrust ourselves to you and to your sovereign will and way and help us to continue to be about the business of uh, seeking to make disciples, to be about the business of good works, Lord, as we're able. Yeah, all these things that are your will for our lives. But we pray that you would begin to mitigate that out of the the, the cultural conscience of, of, our, of our country, uh, that you would open things back up again and that you would be pleased to demonstrate your mercy and your grace. Uh, and we thank you for that. We just love mercy and grace and are in such desperate need of it, we confess. So Lord, we gather up uh, our president, uh, the coming election. We pray for mercy. We pray for wisdom. We pray that all of us would exercise the the delightful right that we have to vote, and we pray that we would uh, 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 be diligent in that. And we thank you for these things, Lord. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Alrighty, as I already mentioned, uh, hopefully you have your Bibles uh, and are opening them to Luke chapter 10, if you haven't already. Um, I know one of the challenging things that I've had uh, to endure while I've been sitting at home listening uh, to the Sunday evening uh, 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 live stream, or I guess this is a recording, um, it's been to come to the living room prepared. Uh, sometimes I rush into the living room having forgotten my Bible or uh, my, my device and maybe even a little notepad. I like to typically take some notes when the Holy Spirit grounds some truth into my thinking as I'm listening. Um, so tonight, in order to try to help uh, all of us participate uh, in, a, in a rather challenging uh, medium, of communication where I can't see your face and seeing if you're getting it and understanding what I'm saying and and uh, you don't always uh, completely uh, get what I'm thinking and uh, I know I'm uh, perhaps a, a little distant I'm one-dimensional I mean that's difficult I'm a, a three-dimensional individual uh, but uh, uh, it just, it's, it's strained for sure when we're communicating through this medium. We certainly would love to be in each other's presence. So in order to try to help, what, I, what I'm going to do tonight as we organize our thinking uh, uh, in this passage is I'm going to ask essentially seven questions of Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Uh, that may sound like a lot, but uh, I think there's seven relevant questions. And as I ask them, I'm going to pause, and uh, I want you as a family, or maybe just you're listening as an individual, I'd like you to answer my question out loud. And, and, and I don't want you to just think about it. I want you to actually use your articulators and actually uh, say out loud, and I'm sure I will hear you over this uh, medium. Uh, you know, I remember watching Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Maybe some of you are too uh, young to know, remember the old one, but uh, one of the thoughts there was to have smell-o-vision, where you could smell smells through the television, and that was being worked on. Uh, but Willy Wonka had discovered how to transport somebody uh, through uh, television ways. Anyway, that, that's a trip down memory lane. You don't need that. Uh, but I'm going to try to listen and to see if I can hear uh, the answer to my question. So I'd invite you to participate that way, and uh, hopefully that'll keep us all focused and awake and moving, and uh, that'd be a good thing. Uh, we've got to do our part uh, when it comes to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God as listeners. Uh, we want to try to be active listeners and engage in a meaningful way with the truth of Scripture. I hope you do that through your devotions daily, through prayer, uh, if you need to speak out loud in prayer so you don't fall asleep, those are all wonderful things uh, to employ. Uh, until we get our new body and our new mind, we're always wrestling uphill uh, to try to get uh, the truth of God's Word and develop our relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus. So, with those things in mind, I'm going to read uh, verses 25 to 37, and then we'll get into what God has for us. And Luke writes here, And a lawyer stood up and put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, that's Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Very surprising turn of events. And likewise, the Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Again, a surprising turn of events, perhaps, unless they were concerned about the law, not wanting to be 
uh, rendered unclean by getting involved with this uh, hurt individual. Verse 33, but a Samaritan who had not the concern of the law and who was just a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And if that weren't enough, uh, the good Samaritan does more. And on the next day, he took out two denarii, which essentially is two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think, lawyer, sir, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the lawyer wisely responded and rightly responded, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him again, go and do the same. Our proposition tonight is a, is a simple one, but it's a penetrating one, and it's one I think uh, we want to think about really in two levels. The first level is for those who view who have uh, never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Uh, there's a level of application that I want to make to you, and uh, hopefully that will become clear as we walk through the passage of Scripture tonight. And on the second level, I want to talk to those of you who have put your faith and trust in Jesus alone, and I want to talk about the mechanics of your heart. I want to talk about a habit that is often so habitual that uh, the exercise of the habit uh, often passes by us without even thinking. And, and I want to arrest our attention a little bit and help us to think. Our proposition is this. I picked up really on verse 29, this idea of wishing to justify himself. And I believe one of the primary messages that Luke is giving us here is the truth that self-justification, self-justification is a threat to eternal life. Whether you're seeking to inherit it or whether you possess it and are trying to live it out but it's a threat to eternal life, self-justification. You know, given Luke's desire to write the exact truth, he says that in chapter 1, verse 4, as he's addressing Theophilus. He says, I want to write to you the exact truth, Theophilus, about what has been taught. It is helpful, then, for us to seek to reconstruct what the inexact truth may have been that Luke was trying to address specifically in this passage for the heart of Theophilus. The inexact truth that Luke seeks to challenge and correct. We could argue from our study of Luke's writing, uh, his gospel and the book of Acts, that from a 10,000 foot view, Luke certainly is writing an apologetic, defending Christianity against the accusation that Christianity had a revolutionary ideas with respect to Roman rule and government. Uh, Luke seeks to defend Christianity from that accusation. Here in our text, Luke furthers this defense by demonstrating that Jesus' interests are far removed from any kind of socio-political concern. Jesus' pursuits, in fact, are not societal, but they're individual and they're personal. His interests are matters that involve the profound question of eternal life. This is the question that the lawyer comes to Jesus with. How can I inherit eternal life? And if that weren't enough, Jesus relentlessly personalizes what would otherwise be a very theoretical discussion on the matters of eternal life. You know, that was one of the options available to Jesus, was simply to engage this lawyer uh, in the law and talk about sort of a theoretical idea of eternal life and 
what the law may or may not say about that. But he doesn't do that. You see, friends, Jesus does not see polemics or arguments. He sees people. He sees souls. He sees exactly what our pastor has encouraged us to see. That's souls. Souls who are all around us in our community. Souls who meet here and gather Sunday after Sunday. We don't gather here for the sake of polemics. We gather here for the purpose of ministry to souls. No soul left behind, our pastor reminds us. And he, he expresses the truth of the very heart of Jesus, uh, who loved souls and was here uh, to demonstrate truth, yes, but grace and truth. Um, so Jesus sees people, not polemics. Unless we believe that inheriting eternal life is the result of somehow modifying the long arm of the Mosaic law, this is what uh, is referenced here in our passage, Jesus clearly corrects that notion. There is no modifying the long arm of the Mosaic law. So as he, he protects the Mosaic law and all of its integrity and purpose, he aids both disciples of Jesus, of himself, and would-be disciples, helping us to realize that self-justification is a great threat to eternal life, to the inheriting of it or the living out of it. So tonight, as I mentioned already, I want to ask seven questions, and again, I would invite you to answer them out loud. They won't be hard questions. They'll be questions taken directly from our text. So the first question I want us to consider is a simple one. Who is Jesus addressing? You'll find that in verse 25. Go ahead and say that out loud. Very good. Jesus is addressing a lawyer. But he's not just any lawyer. He's a lawyer that, according to verse 29, is wishing to justify himself. He's wishing to justify himself. You know, we know lawyers in Jesus' day were a little bit different than the lawyers we would know today. Lawyers today deal with uh, uh, law, jurisprudence, in relationship to the governance of our, 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 our American uh, experiment here. Law in that sense. We've seen a lot of that paraded, at least the, the nuances of that and the reality of that in the uh, Supreme Court justice hearings this past week. Uh, so we're under, we, we get that. Uh, but this lawyer was uh, uh, not only interested in, in civil law, for sure, but he was also interested in moral law. The Mosaic law included civil, ceremonial, and moral. And it's the moral aspect, obviously, that I'm sure was causing this lawyer a level of consternation, a level of consternation. But he was an expert in the Mosaic Law. Now, interestingly enough, we would classify this lawyer uh, or categorize him in a, in a category that Jesus has already articulated back up in verse 21. Uh, here, the, the, the 70 had come back. They had given a wonderful report. And there's just sort of this, this uh, amazing uh, rejoicing. We see our Savior and our Lord rejoicing greatly in the Holy Spirit and saying, I praise you, O Father, verse 21, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed uh, uh, them to infants. Our lawyer, regrettably, would be found among that category of uh, the wise and intelligent. But the joy is, is that Jesus demonstrates his amazing love for the wise and intelligent, even though he has already acknowledged there's a particular difficulty that they face in relationship uh, to understanding these things that the Father had committed to the Son to reveal, Jesus still converses even with those who are wise and intelligent, who need to humble themselves intellectually, who need to understand that though wise and intelligent 
in the realm of temporal concerns, they need to acknowledge themselves to be foolish and unlearned in the arena of eternal concerns. But Jesus converses with them. You know, when uh, we want to be careful in our minds when we have written a sort of class of individual or neighbor or person off because it would appear that their life is abrasive or, or they have such a high level of intellectual pride that, that we don't sort of leave them without ever a heart to come back and revisit them. Jesus did. And we certainly want to replicate his heart for these people. But Jesus converses with those who are intelligent and wise, wishing to justify themselves. And in this way, Jesus shows love to those who try to justify themselves. He still loves them. He still loves them very much. So as we begin to build a profile for a self-justifier, we're going to have several profiled points. Out of this first idea, this first idea that we're dealing with a lawyer, um, and we build uh, who potentially can be given to self-justification, uh, we come to this profile point, and that is this, that self-justifiers are often experts in their field. They believe themselves to have a level of intellectual accomplishment and success. As a result, their ability to learn concerning matters of eternal implications are severely hampered by their perceived expertise. So our first question, who is Jesus' address? Our second question that I invite you to, to answer out loud uh, it's a little bit more difficult, each of these questions. You may have to search a little bit longer, but, but uh, we've already it, it, it sort of uh, tipped our hand, though, here. What is the lawyer's motive? What is the lawyer's motive? All right, very good. We've already mentioned it. But it's to put Jesus to the test. Uh, the Greek word found here in verse 25, the word translated test, as it stands on its own, does not necessarily imply any kind of hostility. It's just simply the word test. We really need to look to the context uh, to derive hostility. Um, if you look back at Luke chapter 4, verse 12, where Satan puts Jesus to the test, or Jesus says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Uh, that context could perhaps argue for a very hostile, uh, 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 skewed motive that Satan had in putting Jesus to the test. The same word there. But here we don't necessarily pick up the nuance of hostility. Um, we, we pick up the nuance of, of intellectual pride. We pick up the nuance of really a self-justifier but not necessarily with any sort of hostile purpose or intent. So our profile point underneath this question, the lawyer's motive, is this. Self-justifiers often view conversations as tests. Self-justifiers often view conversations as tests. And in that sense, their questions, we would say, are inauthentic. You know, self-justifiers rarely have what we would consider to be an authentic question. They rarely come to uh, the, the uh, conversation with the goal of truly learning something, truly trying to come to some new understanding. You know, uh, we're in the political cycle. We, we, again, we have seen the, the SCOTUS um, uh, hearings this week, and there have been many inauthentic questions. And and questions that were simply asked to make points or to score political uh, uh, points. So we're very, we're very familiar with this, this idea. Um, uh, so one thing, uh, or I would argue, and I think what Jesus is trying to say, and really what Luke's trying to point out to Theophilus, that it's one thing to take sort of that approach in temporal matters. And, and for those of you who have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I really want you to hear that. 
that intellectual pride or your expertise uh, is, has some value in relationship to your academic discipline, your career. But lest you're careful, you're going to carry that into an unwillingness or a desire to justify yourself when you're faced with this amazing tutor that Jesus is going to bring into the picture. My friend, can I frankly say, you know nothing about eternal life. You know nothing about what is required to inherit eternal life. And, and on that score, I would, I would recommend you pausing your intellectual pride and your, 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 your perhaps religious pursuits uh, the thoughts of good outweighing bads or, or sort of standing in judgment over uh, uh, what the word of God has to say. And I would really encourage you and ask you and employ you, implore you to authentically sit before the word of God and allow it to instruct you in matters concerning eternal life. Um, that's essentially what Jesus is pushing for in this lawyer's life. He loves him. He's hearing him. He recognizes already. He's put him into a class that's going to make it difficult. He's in a class that's going to make it difficult for him to receive the, simplest, the simple truths of the gospel. Uh, but he's trying to help this lawyer see his need, particularly in the realm of inheriting eternal life. So can I encourage you with that, dear friend? To just understand that you haven't died and gone away and come back. But Jesus has. And in this case, he knew that's where he was headed. And so we'd encourage you to, to hear what Jesus has to say. Our third question then tonight is this, as we look at our passage. How does the lawyer address Jesus? How does the lawyer address Jesus? And what I mean here is he gives him a title. What's the title that he gives Jesus? All right, very good. Some of you may have said teacher. Some of you may have said rabbi, depending on um, uh, the, the translation you're using. Um, uh, but, but we have the, the, the lawyer here acknowledging the fact that Jesus like others in his day and age, was a teacher, was a rabbi. He, he at least gave Jesus uh, a level of competence uh, within uh, uh, his earthly culture. Uh, the Jews obviously were known for having rabbis who taught uh, this sort of uh, tradition, the rabbinical tradition arose when Israel was uh, hauled off into captivity. They were no longer able to enjoy uh, their religious life around the central altar in Jerusalem. So as they were slung off into Gentile territories, uh, they created these synagogues. And these synagogues were led by Sabbath uh, rabbis. And it was there that... Uh, Teaching uh, was given in hopes of not losing uh, uh, Judaism. Uh, so the lawyer puts Jesus as one among many rabbis. Now, obviously, that's not going to do. Um, Jesus is going to speak within an authority, um, and it really becomes important that uh, the lawyer understands that Jesus is not just merely another rabbi to be heard, but that Jesus himself is the very Son of God, that he speaks with an authority that's inherent in his divinity, specifically when it comes to the questions of eternal life, that the lawyer, in fact, needs to entrust himself to the very word of Jesus when it comes to eternal life. So this is really a matter of an entrustment. The, the, uh, uh, the lawyer was going to entrust himself as much to Jesus as he does to every other rabbi, which frankly is not very much. Uh, he was unwilling to trust, to entrust himself. It's a matter of entrustment. Um, who do I trust? You know, self-justifiers as a profile point then 
Self-justifiers acknowledge just titles. They, they're good and they, they appreciate titles. But they don't entrust themselves to the people who own those titles necessarily. Um, and I think it's very careful that we understand that there's a very distinct difference between Jesus and rabbis. But the reality is, is Jesus has left on this earth or has ordained and gifted men as elders within a local assembly. Uh, and certainly they are not on the same plane as Jesus by any stretch of the imagination. But they are the authority that God has placed on this earth uh, to understand what God's word says, to teach it, and to teach it with a level of authority. So we as elders, uh, uh, God has commanded our church family to uh, entrust themselves to elders insofar as they are following Jesus and insofar as they are elders who are serving with honor uh, by working hard at, at understanding truth from the word of God. But, but in the end of the day, the reality is, is this is the place of entrustment. It's the place of the local assembly. It's the place where the word of God is preached and taught clearly and, and we trust in understandable fashion. And so just a note there about self-justifiers don't entrust themselves. They're, they're very maverick in that sense. Um, uh, uh, this self-justifier, this lawyer in the face of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, God himself, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, he, he is uh, in, in a much subtler and sophisticated way doing the same thing that the demoniac did. Uh, the demoniac came to Jesus screaming and saying, Jesus, get away from here. I want nothing to do with you. And I would argue that um, the lawyer, in essence, is saying the exact same thing, just with a more subtle and sophisticated hue about it. But it's fair to say they are no less completely, or he is no less completely lost and horrifically in danger of hellfire than the demoniac was. So neither the demoniac nor the lawyer were really willing to entrust themselves to the unique authority of the person of Jesus, the divine Son of God, to speak to the matters of eternal concern. So a mere title. Question number four. Here it is for you. Are you ready? All right. So who did the lawyer believe could act to obtain eternal life? Now you have to really look at verse uh, uh, 25 there. We're still there. Who did the lawyer believe could act to obtain eternal life? Do you see it there? Well, it's in, implicit in his question. It's explicit, actually, in his question. He says... Teacher, what shall I do? I do to inherit eternal life. You know, we admire self-reliance here in America. Uh, something we cherish, something we, we appreciate. However, we need to understand that self-reliance simply will not do when it comes to the question of inheriting eternal life. The reason for this will become painfully clear as we move on in the passage. So our profile point underneath this question is self-justifiers are ruggedly self-reliant. They want to do it. They want to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. You know, believers, as we wrestle with this self-justifying spirit, that old sin nature, um, in in in. in Difficult moments where that old sin nature is raising its ugly head, that self-justifying, rugged individualism. You know, the pictures of the church being a family or a building or even a field that a farmer works, they're all lost in those moments on us, aren't they? That we're uniquely integrated together, that the Holy Spirit dwells all of us, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, membership becomes an expression of that familial relationship and bond. And, and we want to be sure that we honor that membership process, that we desire to be membered of a good local New Testament church and submit ourselves underneath. Uh, we don't want to be ruggedly individualistic. 
We don't want to have that, that, that sort of underlying uh, self-justifying uh, unwillingness to entrust ourselves to the family and organization of the church. You know, self-justifiers perhaps fear uh, the transparency that those who have inherited eternal life through the person of Jesus Christ requires. Um, you know, truly the church is filled with hypocrites. That's sort of the nature of, of, of what sanctification is all about. But we do that without the threat of condemnation, and we're so thankful for that. And, and when you come into the church, you are a confessor of uh, uh, the fact that you are a hypocrite, there's still a lot of things in your life that have yet to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and you're working at it, and you're willing to roll your window down, particularly when you find comfort, so that you can comfort others. And uh, a self-justifying people, I don't think, are comfortable with that. And they don't understand, really, the, the actual the genius of inheriting eternal life uh, makes that a reality because we no longer sit under the auspices of condemnation. We sit under the auspices of love and relationship. Um, so self-justifiers wrestle with the perfect love found in Jesus that casts out fears. That casts out fears. So what must I do to inherit eternal life is the heart of the self-justifier. It's something that I can do. Question number five, only uh, a few more to go here. And that is this. What was Jesus' initial response to the lawyer? Or really his complete response to the lawyer. You really, you really pick that up um, in verse 26. And then you pick it up again in verse 28. He doesn't contend with the lawyer. He directs the lawyer to his expertise, the law. And he simply says, uh, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? So if you answered that, you answered correctly. And then later on, he tells the lawyer, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And then at the very end of our, 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 our our, our, of our passage. He says in verse 37, go and do the same. So what Jesus does, he masterfully uh, employs a well-known tutor for uh, this student of his, the student who was self-justifying, who, who had interests to, um, to affirm himself through his own, he wants to be the judge and the jury, uh, the judge and the jury of his own life. But Jesus employs a well-known tutor, and, and this tutor is a masterful tutor. He employs the law. You know, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, Paul praises the law. And he helps us understand the role that the law plays in the life of the New Testament Christian, and really it's in, in the life of all believers. Um, uh, and he teaches us that the law is an amazing tutor. Uh, you know, it's one thing to sit in a classroom full of students and learn from a teacher. But there are educational models where, and they've been proven to be much more effective, where individuals go off one-on-one -on -one with a tutor. And, and how much more quickly and how much more completely truth can be understood, embraced, and applied underneath a relationship of student to tutor rather than students, plural, in a classroom to a teacher. So it's a highly effective form of teaching truth. The law is that individual tutor. It teaches, um, or, or its teaching should lead us to a deep, hungering need for Jesus' forgiveness. This is the point of the law as a tutor. Jesus knows this, that the law's intentionality is love-shaped. It's love-shaped. And Jesus also knows that love for Jesus, for himself, is law-shaped. And we'll, we'll see that here a little bit. 
But as we unpack Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, and I'd include you to, I'd encourage you to look there, but we see two very simple purposes and goals that the law has. You know, if you're a teacher or a tutor, uh, you know that in your training, you spent hours and hours and hours learning to develop your objectives. And before you sat down with any lesson content, you had to write your objectives. And they had to be written in a certain form. And, and they had to be student actionable. And, and they had to have some very clear written outcomes. And so you worked hard at developing your objectives. Well, folks, here are the objectives for this amazing tutor called the Law of God. Number one, it is to lead us to Christ. The whole point of the law, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, four of which talk about our relationship to God and how we consistently outside of Christ violate that. And then the last six are dealing with our relationship to man. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is what the lawyer said. And love your neighbor as yourself. He, he essentially summed up the moral law of God. And he was right to do so. And Jesus says, you are right in doing that. And, and those who have and have eternal life are instructed by that. So it was to lead to Christ. And it, then it was to, be, to understand that justification is by faith alone. By faith alone. You know, we've all had tough teachers in high school or perhaps in college, or perhaps some of you had a, had a parent who, who was, you know, not a child-centered parent. He, 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 they were tougher on you. And, and at the time, you graded. It, it graded you uh, the wrong way. Uh, but if they were fair and right and just, the demands were clear, and they were understood, they may have at the time graded you the wrong way, but looking back, you are so grateful. Even though you are no longer under that parent or high school teacher or college teacher, no longer under their authority, you may still try to model what they taught you. But you do not do so under the threat of condemnation. You do so under the desire to sort of be like those people were and to be that inspiration, to be that kind of change in the life of people. So although we are no longer under the Mosaic law, if we are in Christ, the law, if we are in Christ, however, we need to remember that the law still gives us a very accurate representation, morally and ethically, of what the goal is for us in sanctification. You know, 1 Peter reminds us that we're to be holy as God is holy. And so the law is still helpful. So as we develop a profile picture here at this point of self-justifiers, self-justifiers need a tutor in order to shake them from their self-justification so that they can know eternal life. You know, there's some people, disciplers, uh, who, who you meet in the community, and they just know they're lost. Uh, you know, they don't necessarily need the tutor of the law to convince them that they're lost. They understand their sin. They understand that they have offended a holy God. But you know, at times we'll run across people who, who are self-justifiers, who, who need the tutor of the law and need to hear the words that we need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is not hyperbole. This is what is absolutely required for anybody who's going to know and enjoy eternal life. Jesus does not modify, qualify, or in any way enhance or reduce the clear teaching of the tutor. The law is simply the expression of the character of God. Law is what God is. We need to understand this. You know, if you are absolutely holy, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, without any ability to be inconsistent with your absolutely holy self, it's arguable that every breath you take is law and is always the best thing. And this is true of the God of heaven, the God of the Bible. 
And this is what the law demands. It is thou shalt not lie ever, ever. Thou shalt not commit adultery ever, ever. This is what the holiness of God demands. This is what eternal life requires. Absolutely and without question. Now the lawyer gets this, right? He gets this. Jesus' hope in verse 28, as he says to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Verse 29, Jesus hopes that the lawyer would say, nobody can do this. And Jesus would say, you're absolutely right. And at that point, then the beautiful thing is, is once you admit to the law you're guilty, then what does the law do? The law turns you over to the judge. And here's the profound, amazing truth that the judge of this law is not only the judge, he's also the justifier. You see, God wants us all to throw up our arms and to commend ourselves as guilty to the law. We do not love the Lord God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. We do not do that. So we cast ourselves into the arms of the law, and the law picks us up, and it carries us to the judge. And then the judge renders judgment. And as those of us who know about Jesus, Jesus, uh, or this judge, knows a nuanced form of justice. That there's a possibility of substitutionary atonement that someone else can pay your price. You see, the law doesn't deal with that. The law simply brings condemnation, picks you up, and takes you to the judge. But then gloriously, the judge takes over. The judge takes over and he says, I will pay the price for your sin, the debt that the law requires. I will appease the wrath of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ did that when he went to the cross. And he bled there violently without reason of his own, but because of your sin and mine, he bore our sins in his body on the tree in a very bloody fashion as he bore the wrath of God for your sin and for mine. And it's there the believer finds the, uh, the, the intellect, the human intellect, the, the self-justifying propensity of my life melts away because the law demands and makes very clear that there is no self-justification possible. But it's there that it all melts away and the love of God found in the person of Jesus Christ as God pours out his wrath on his own son Jesus dies for your sin and for mine, and then he rises again from the dead the third day, demonstrating his power once and for all over sin and death. And we who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone enjoy that power, not to its absolute sense yet, but in its incremental sense. We have the ability to become holy, little by little, growing in Christ-likeness is the verbiage we like to use. Um, and as a result, enjoy holy outcomes in our life. Chaos reduces into clarity. Um, we begin to be more productive. We, the words that come from our mouth as we seek to counsel and advise are literally helpful to people rather than skewing them in the wrong direction. We become productive uh, with uh, eternal principles in view the ability to apprehend them now because we're in Christ. You know, what did the lawyer do? Well, well, the lawyer, number six, what is his response? This is our question. Well, he responds by saying what? Not, oh, I'm help hopeless in myself. No, he says, who is my neighbor, right? Who is my neighbor? Self-justifiers employ red herrings to relieve the tension of the moral law of God, that is, that, the tension that it creates in their life. The lawyer knew that what the law was asking was impossible for men. Instead, he does what the nature of man always does, as, it's, as it has a chokehold on its own self-justifying <laughs> need. 
So what does it do? It domesticates the law. It changes the standard to fit or questions it in such a way that it leads to endless discussion. And we're familiar with that. We've seen that. So he throws out a red herring. You know, in the realm of logic and rhetoric, we call what the lawyer did a red herring. Who is my neighbor? Um, red herring's a, a metaphor. It, uh, literally, a red herring, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pickled herring, evidently, a salted herring fish, which was reddish brown in color, and it had a very pungent odor. And uh, 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 it, was, it, it had an odor that was so strong and delectable to dogs that it served as a great training tool uh, to see if these dogs would stay on the scent. Obviously, dogs never go fishing for herring in the sea. So the idea was this was a scent they would never really uh, come across out in the hunting woods. Uh, but it was so delectable. So evidently, red herrings were put out to see if a good hunting dog would stay on the course of the, the raccoon rather than get diverted to these red herrings. Uh, so a red herring in rhetoric is a distraction from the argument by introducing a sentiment that seems to be relevant, but it really isn't on topic. This tactic is common when someone doesn't like the current topic and wants to detour in something else instead, something that's easier and safer. A red herring is typically related to the issue in question, but it's quite irrelevant when it's really thought about. Self-justifiers employ red hearings to relieve the tension of the moral law. Jesus' hope was that the lawyer would admit his need for help, that he would fall into the arms of his tutor so that the tutor then could turn and take him to the judge. And there, the judge of the Mosaic law, the judge of law, of it is there we find a nuanced justice as we already mentioned, a substitute, one who fills all the law's demands in a fashion that there was infinite enough satisfaction for all lawbreakers to come once they set aside their own self-justifying mind and heart. Number seven, what do people who entrust themselves to the law's assessment and Jesus' unique authority concerning how to inherit eternal life go and do? Well, they go and do what the Samaritan did. They go and show mercy. They do the same. Self-justifier's only hope is to recognize their need for mercy. To recognize their need for mercy. You know, often the Good Samaritan is looked at in terms of its social value. We have insurance companies that are called uh, the, good, the, the Samaritan in Health Insurance Company. And, and yet, we want to understand that the Good Samaritan is a parable that's told not with uh, a social action in view. It is really answering the question of what must I do to inherit eternal life. And it shows uh, that what is required for eternal life is there must be a shocking display of mercy. That's the only hope. That's the only hope. Those who inherit eternal life become the most unliking, shocking displayers of mercy because they themselves have been the recipients of the most unliking, shocking display of mercy found in the judge of the law that condemns. This is shocking. This is unbelievable. This is the outcome when the law's profound, perfect demands of all heart, all soul, all mind, and all strength, when they're not domesticated by self-justification, rather they are rather like an accelerant these alls are allowed to burn in guilt till finally concession is made to the law. The law picks us up and takes us to the judge, the lawgiver, the judge, where we're told that faith alone in Jesus' merciful substitution, that work 
is the only hope to inherit eternal life. This is the point of the Good Samaritan. It's the point of mercy, of shocking mercy. Not domesticated law, not social action, although we certainly ought to be like the Good Samaritan and help those who we find in need. But, but we want to understand to do that without an understanding of the shocking mercy Um, we too will be self-justifiers and will burn in hell forever, having not received the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So self-justification is a great threat to inheriting eternal life or living out eternal life. Self-justifiers often are experts in their field. They view conversations as tests, they acknowledge titles but fail to entrust themselves. They're ruggedly self-reliant. They desperately need a tutor to shake them from their self-justification so that they too can inherit eternal life. Self-justifiers typically employ red herrings, regrettably, to relieve the tension of the moral law of God. Self-justifiers' only hope is to recognize their need for shocking mercy because there is no self-justification against the powerful demand of the moral law of God to love him with all your heart, all your strength, all your mind, everything that's in you. And no man does that. No woman can do that. But that is what is absolutely required if we're going to inherit eternal life. The good news is Jesus did. He loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself, and he did so perfectly, infinitely, and eternally. And he imputes to our account that righteous reality when we put our faith and trust in his amazing mercy by faith alone. According to Galatians chapter uh, 3, that's the point of the moral law to lead us to Christ and to teach us that justification has only one hope and that's faith and faith alone. So unbeliever, God's law demands absolute perfection and frankly you do not have it. You, it's impossible. Neither do I. I would implore you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Give away your self-justifying habit and spirit. Turn from that and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. It's irrational, given the information that Jesus has given us in Luke 10, to try to think you can continue to justify yourself in the face of what the moral law of God demands. Run to the judge and find in him justification by faith alone. Jesus Christ, the lover of our souls. And a believer, you know, self-justification, self-justification still lingers in our heart, doesn't it? The old sin nature remains. First Peter's command for holiness is our goal and destination. We must be holy as he is holy. Some of us relegate holiness to an impossible dream. And, and, and yet, we are not given that option. Uh, we are to pursue holiness, not under the threat of condemnation, but in a loving relationship to God through Jesus Christ making progress in being more holy. We certainly ought to long to be holy, desire the values of the Holy Spirit, longing for those matters to be more and more true in our life. Holiness is the real expression of the love of God. Remember, God's holiness, God's law is love-shaped. It leads to all of the loving outcomes in a life. And we would say that love for Jesus is law-shaped. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you do what? You keep my commandments. We need to stop putting this unnatural wedge between law and love. We need to understand how they function in the history of salvation. We don't want to diminish the law in any way. We want to see it as an expression of the goodness of God and all of his wonderful character. The moral aspects of that law. We want to love it and appreciate it. 
and long and strive for it. And now that we are in Christ, we can do that. Remember, God's law is love-shaped, and Christ's love is law-shaped. May I encourage you to take up again those areas of life where you perhaps have been so frustrated you've just set them aside because... But you know Jesus is knocking on the door of those places. I would encourage you to swing those open again and invite the Lord Jesus Christ to renovate those areas of your life. Um, Jesus wants you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the idea there, not the fear of man, but the fear of God, the reverence and respect paid to one who laid down his life for you. We're so thankful that there is no threat of condemnation anymore to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation, dear believer. So as often as you may get frustrated with yourself and condemn yourself and, and rake yourself over the coals, know that Jesus never does that. He just says, come with me, follow me. The righteous man falls seven times and gets back up again because he can. In Christ, there is no condemnation. So may I commend that into your conscience. And may the Lord bless you tonight. Thank you so much for your good attention.